critical race theory. Border crisis, gender confusion, rights, regulations in government, Afghanistan, COVID, vaccinations, race, riots, government resistance, sexual deviancy, self-exaltation, self-promotion, government spending, reparations, protesting the national anthem, voting responsibility, voter suppression, Canaan, Black Lives Matter, Blue Lives Matter, the opioid crisis, agenda-driven news, fake news, debates and divisions, liberals, conservatives, constitutionalists, and socialists. And how does the Christian talk about these things? And where do we begin? It's always around election time that I get well-meaning recommendations on things that should be addressed from the pulpit. The hard thing that I find as a preacher is where to begin on all of these issues. And I might point out that these issues, I do not minimize them at all, nor do I make light of them. Matter of fact, many of them should cause us to grieve. And yet many of these things are from our Western vantage point, not to speak of the genocide that's going on in Sudan. And has been for the last 30 years. Or the oppression of the E people in central and southern China. Or the burning of churches in Hindu-centric India. How do we talk about these things? How, how, how do we take a position? What, what do we do as Christians? Well, for some things... We celebrate a providential opportunity as God moves. Afghan refugees is an ongoing travesty and crisis. And yet at the same time, God shows that he is bigger than evil by using evil to draw people to himself. And we have a providential opportunity to reach Afghans in Fort Pickett and to show them love of Jesus Christ. For other things here, we have a responsibility. This coming Tuesday is a governor's election here in Virginia. And you know what? I hope the COVID crisis reminds you that the government can have tremendous power over the church. And there's actually a candidate that could potentially be a friend of the church. Go out there and vote. I ask you to go and steward that responsibility. But in all of these things, with prayer and humility, we must seek wisdom from God and the Holy Spirit. And to talk with one another. Let us know how we can help resource you and encourage you with biblical perspectives on many of these issues. For some of these issues, we just must pray and ask the Lord wisdom because they're very complex. And I know that many of these issues and crises are on our minds. So, let's talk about Melchizedek. From critical race theory to Melchizedek. <clears throat> but you see, I'm convinced 
that a Melchizedekian priest is the answer to all of the problems I just stated. And a Melchizedekian priest, oh man, say that 10 times fast. A Melchizedekian priest should be on the lips of the church. And many of the problems that we're talking about exist because the church doesn't talk about him enough. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 1 through 3. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. When this passage was written, Hebrews chapter 7, sometime in the mid to late first century, in the time of the New Testament church, in the world of the New Testament, there were grave political scandals going on, abuses of power, immorality, indulgence on a scale that tested the very limits of human depravity, persecution of church and bloodshed and all of the above. And yet as you read the New Testament, the New Testament is overwhelmingly focused on one objective. The revelation, the explanation, and the celebration of Jesus Christ. That is the theme of the New Testament. It doesn't mean that we can't or shouldn't talk about these other issues. But may we never be detracted into lesser things and neglect the greater things because I believe that far too many pulpits and Christians in the church are caught up with the secondary issues instead of talking and realizing and living in the power of the resurrected and risen Jesus Christ. Heritage, we are going to be a place that talks about Jesus. If you're visiting here, welcome. But I want you to know up front, if you want a political church in the sense that that's going to be the center of our speech, please find another church. But we are and we must talk about this Melchizedekian priest because everything hinges on it. It is not neglecting the world around us. It is not being so heavenly minded that you're not any earthly good. And I hate that phrase because you know what? The problem with the church is not that we're so heavenly minded. It's that we're not heavenly minded enough. What we're really saying when we say that phrase is we're not being obedient because to be heavenly minded is to care about the people in the world around you, but not by answering the world with worldly answers, but rather answering these issues and situations with the power of Jesus Christ that has the power to change lives, to change perspectives, to change worldviews, to stop riots, bring peace, and exalt God. The answer is in Him. We're gonna, we got to say this again and again and again. And please hear my heart. I'm, I'm not besmirching the real lives that are affected in all of these issues. But let's be confident about what the answer is. Talking about Jesus may not fill churches like prophecies, conspiracy theories, and politics can. But talking about Jesus fills the soul in a way nothing else can. 
Hebrews wants you to be enraptured with Christ, and the author wants you to see his superiority in all things. Hebrews 1, his surpassing greatness. He's greater than Abraham, Moses, and Joshua. He's a great high priest after the order of not Aaron, but Melchizedek. So three questions this morning. Three questions. Number one, who is Melchizedek? Number two, what does he have to do with Jesus? Number three, why talk about all of these things with these crises raging around the world? Number one, who is Melchizedek? And I need my bottle of water. Excuse me. Who is Melchizedek? There's a lot of theories on this question. Melchizedek. Only mentioned in three places in all the Bible. Genesis 15, Psalm 110, and then eight times in the book of Hebrews. He's an enigmatic and mysterious figure. One of the Qumranic scrolls found in Cave 12 in Qumran actually talks about Melchizedek. Now, if that just totally went over your head, here, here, here's Qumran, a place in, in southern Israel that is right by the Sea of Galilee, and there are these caves everywhere. And actually, you can see the, the, the Old Testament come to life. When David hid in a cave, you can see where that geographically could have and would have taken place. But there was a shepherd boy who was throwing stones into a cave, and he kept hearing the breaking of pottery. He went in there and found all of these stone jars, and in them were ancient scrolls. Archaeologists came, and they found almost a complete version of the Old Testament, the earliest dated version of the Old Testament. And then also commentaries from this community of, of devoted Jews in Qumran right about the time of Christ, also a little bit before. So significant is this discovery, and I also want to talk just as a tangent, you can have confidence in this word. Uh, for most of the latter millennia, the earliest Hebrew text that we have was the Masoretic text from 1000 AD. It's about 1,000, 1,500 years after the time that the Old Testament was written. And people, specifically liberal scholars, would say, 1,500 years, that's our earliest version? So much must have been changed. We cannot trust the Old Testament text. I'm sure there were additions, changes, and all of these things. Okay, 1000 AD. The Qumran scrolls are discovered, written a couple hundred years, some of them, even before the time of Christ. And when they compared the text, a 1200, 1100 year gap, they found almost zero difference. God preserves his word. Now, even over these millennia, the word of God has stayed sure and secure. But one of the Qumranic texts in cave 12 mentions Melchizedek and says that he is a powerful supernatural being that, that battles the demons. And sometimes Christians have taken mythology and inculcated it into scripture. And they ask, well, is he an angel? Or perhaps is he a Christophany, a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ? Or is he a regular man, a historic figure, a real king who lived? I want to argue for the latter, that he is a historic person and not a Christophany. Definitely not an angel. The text does not support that. Uh, a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. We do have examples of that, which we'll look at in just a moment. But if, if you hold to a Christophany, I won't quarrel with you because it doesn't affect the interpretation of Hebrews 7. But I do think it's an inaccurate understanding of Hebrews 7 or of whom Melchizedek is, that he is a real man, a historic king. 
And the author of Hebrews, he would have written this right as these conspiracy theories and speculations about Melchizedek were actually coming to their height. And he doesn't pick up on it. He just says, let's talk about this man in Genesis 14 that really lived. So turn with me, if you would, to Genesis 14, verse 1. Genesis 14, verse 1. Clear to the beginning of the Bible. First book of the Bible. We pick up on the story of Abram, or Abraham. He is traversing the land of Canaan. Lot is living in Sodom. And in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goiim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Admah, Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and king of Bela, that is Zoar. What a mouthful of names. I practiced that for 20 minutes before I got it right. So... When you look at these names, what we see are a coalition of kings who come to make war. And then in chapter 14, verse 12, they took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. So this is a raiding party of a coalition of kings. Now, we should understand these kings not as kings of empires, but kings of city-states. What is a city-state? It is a city where a king rules that city and the surrounding region. But we're not, this is not an empire. Interestingly enough, again, given credence to the historicity of the Bible, archaeologists excavating this time period of history have, guess what, discovered city-state kingdoms all over Canaan. So we see this coalition of city kings, city-state kings, form a raiding party. They raid another group of city-state kings. They take... Lot, his family, captive. Verse 14. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. He divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsmen Lot with all his possessions and the women and the people. Verse 17, and his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. Verse 18, first appearance in the Bible, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of the most high God, and he blessed him and said, blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hands. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And then in verse 21 and verse 24, the king of Sodom also wants to give stuff to Abraham. But Abraham says yes to Melchizedek, but no to Sodom. Okay. Back to Hebrews chapter 7. As we understand Melchizedek, He's not a part of this conflict that happened in Genesis 14. And the writer of Hebrews is doing simple exposition. Who is Melchizedek? Well, he's king of Salem, priest of the Most High God. Why does he say this? Because Genesis 14 says it. Abraham came back from the slaughter of the kings, gave a tenth. And why does he say this? Because Genesis 14 says it. Again, exposition of the New Testament of the Old Testament. Melchizedek is not a part of this conflict. He meets Abraham. 
gives food, bread and wine, and pronounces blessing. He is priest and king. Now, now this is unique in the history of Israel. Not in the pagan world. Kings and priests were a common duality. But actually in the Old Testament, the king and the priest were two very distinct offices. Matter of fact, King Saul was separated from God's blessing. Why? Because he took upon himself the mantle of priest when he shouldn't have. But here we have a king and a priest. And we need to understand this is not a king as in like a constitutional monarch like Queen Elizabeth II who's got some, she's a figurehead with limited powers. No, a king has absolute authority. Melchizedek, king of Salem, given the geography and the region, this is more than likely Jerusalem. Melchizedek is king of Jerusalem. He's king and priest of El Elyon, most high God. He believes in the one creator God, superior to all other gods. Again, an archaeological note, and I think that we can't do this all the time, but when you can understand and bring in some of the archaeology and see how it interfaces, you recognize that the Bible is not at odds with revealed science. Archaeologists discovered a vast treasure trove of clay tablets called the Ugaritic Texts. The Ugaritic texts, thousands of tablets, describing the Canaanite life during the period of Abraham. And what is interesting is that the earlier Ugaritic texts, you find a common belief in a supreme God. But as time goes on, there is a devolution into greater polytheism. Now, I would argue and say that this is totally coherent with the book of Genesis and the creation account and the, de the devolution of man into greater depravity who began with an understanding of the creator God, the one true God, and then devolved into lower gods. Well, here we find Melchizedek, though, is one of the few holdouts. He still believes in the one creator God. And I also find it amazing that Abraham is not the only God follower on the world at that time. Abraham gets all the spotlight in the book of Genesis. But God had other people, other men and women who were his, and Melchizedek is one of them. Abraham then gives a tithe, 10%. And this is not worship of Melchizedek, as some would say, and therefore justifying it's a Christophany. No, this is not worship of Melchizedek. This is worship of of God. The tithe to Melchizedek is just recognition of his role as a priest and intercessor before God. Okay, Melchizedek is an oasis in chaos, order and peace in the middle of the battle who brings provision and blessing upon Abraham. That's Melchizedek, a real historical figure. Now what does Melchizedek have to do with Jesus? And this is Hebrews 7. So we have an interpretation of why this event is significant. Now, before we get there, the second appearance of Melchizedek outside of Genesis 14 is Psalm 110. This is a psalm written by King David. It's the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. And it speaks of the Messiah. It says, in Psalm 110, verse 4 through 6, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. 
He will execute judgment among the nations. So Psalm 110 is a well-recognized psalm predicting the Messiah. Melchizedek in Genesis 14, he's a priest king. The Messiah is going to be a priest king after the order of Melchizedek. Hebrews chapter 5 verse 10, Jesus is after the order of Melchizedek. And then Hebrews 7, which is where we're at this morning, explains what that means or begins to. Because the rest of Hebrews 7 is talking about the significance of Melchizedek. Okay. Verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God. Who is Melchizedek? Not an angel, not a Christophany. Why? In verse 3, it doesn't say that Melchizedek is the Son of God. It says he resembles the Son of God. He is like the Son of God. We also do not have direct worship of Melchizedek. Whereas in Joshua chapter 5, verse 13, Joshua is about to take Jericho, and there is a man there standing, and he is arrayed for war, and Joshua says, who are you? And he says, I'm the commander of the Lord's armies. And Joshua falls on his face and worships. It could be an angel of the Lord. But I would argue and say in that instance, because of the direct worship and the nature of the event, this probably is a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. But Melchizedek is a type, a prefigurement, an image that gives us a partial picture of what Christ is going to be. In biblical study, a type refers to an Old Testament person, practice, or ceremony that is fulfilled ultimately by something later on. So in other words, to a degree, even the, 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 the tabernacle and the sanctuary, the sanctuary, the Holy of Holies is a prefigurement, a type of heaven, picturing heaven. Canaan is a type, taking the land of Canaan. That, that whole uh, movement of Joshua and taking the land, the promised place, is a place of, is a prefigurement, a type of moving towards heaven. Now I know that there are battles that are still waged, but types are partial, incomplete, imperfect pictures that look forward to a perfect one. The writer of Hebrews is arguing and says, there's Moses, the prophet, but Jesus is a better prophet. There's Joshua, the warrior. Jesus is a better warrior. There's Canaan, the promised land, but Jesus gives a better promised land. There is David, the king, but Jesus is the superior, better king. There is the Aaronic, the priesthood after Aaron, but Jesus is the better priest. He's the better priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now some would say again, verse 3, he is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. Isn't that describing someone supernatural? That's to miss the argument. Because you see, the, Aaron, the Aaronic priesthood, Aaron's priesthood, was built on genealogy. Who your father was, Matt, that, that told if you could be a priest or not. And the priesthood that Jesus brings is not built upon a genealogy. Genesis 14 says Melchizedek was a priest not on the basis of his genealogy, who his dad was, who his mom was, but on the basis of his character. And who he is. And the type of king priest that he is. 
And this priesthood never ended. Aaron's priesthood ends. Melchizedek's priesthood never ends. Melchizedek, 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 king, Zedek, righteousness. And the writer of Hebrews interprets this and says his name means king of righteousness. He's also king of Salem, which is king of peace. Interestingly enough, king of, the word Salem is formed of the same Hebrew root for shalom, peace. That this king, this Melchizedek, his domain is one of righteousness and of peace. And he acts with authority as king, but also as priest interceding on behalf of sinners. This Melchizedek is priest-king. His rule defined by character of righteousness, goodness, and holiness. That Jesus, likewise after this order, is king of righteousness. King of holiness, goodness. You know, some people, when I, when I say holy, you hear, this is what I must do and what I must not do. And we, we boil it down to a Christian checklist. But when we think about holiness, we can also describe it as that which is lovely and that which is unlovely, unholiness. And that God has the right as God to define that which is lovely and to define that which is unlovely. And that which is good and holy is lovely. And that which is unrighteous Deviant is unlovely. The world, as demonstrated by all the issues that I just read off, they want its own rules to define what they want, what is lovely and what is unlovely. And so the world has defined that which is unlovely is lovely. And that which is lovely is unlovely. The call to be holiness, the call to be holy in holiness, is the call to loveliness. And there is nothing more beautiful than that which is holy. Godlessness is the greatest affront to God. Listen, there are many, many evil people. We're all sinners by nature, right? But there's many people out in the world who hate God and yet do good things. And so we walk out of the world and say, how can they be evil when they do good things? But you need to understand that unholiness, unrighteousness, unloveliness before God is first and foremost not defined by what we do, but rather by the absence and or presence of God. The greatest affront to God is Godlessness. So even if you do good things, but God is not in it, it is an affront to God. The Christian is not defined because we get everything right and perfect, but rather because God is in it. And if God is in it, then it will produce a fruit and works of righteousness and of love and of goodness and of holiness. 
Listen, I am not a Christian because I do good things. I am a Christian because the living Christ through his Holy Spirit has reached down and chosen me by his grace and he lives within Nathan Smith. And by the grace of God, he's patient with me as he works out righteousness in my life, though I still so many times get it wrong. But what is different is not by what I bring to God, but rather the fact that the living Christ lives within me. By his grace, by his goodness, it's the presence of God. The priest king is a righteous king, a God-present king. And here's the thing, he's a priest king of righteousness and of Peace and righteousness and peace go hand in hand. We talked about all those crises and things going on in the world today. You know why there's no peace? It's because there's no righteousness. The path to peace always comes via righteousness. Isaiah 32, verse 17. Let me make my argument with this point. The effect of righteousness will be peace. The result of righteousness, quietness, and trust forever. What the world needs is a priest king of righteousness to transform their unrighteous hearts and give them righteousness. Only when righteousness comes to dwell in the hearts of men will peace start to become a reality. And the only person who can bring that peace into our hearts is a Melchizedekian priest, Jesus Christ, the priest after the order of Melchizedek, the priest king of righteousness, the priest king of peace. That's who our Jesus is. That's the answer to this world. Psalm 85 verse 10, and this is so beautiful. Steadfast love. And faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. In the person of Jesus Christ, righteousness and peace kiss. They become one. The path to peace is always righteousness. The path to peace is not experience or experimentation. The path to peace is not success or wealth or pleasure. The path to peace only comes by the king of righteousness. And peace is only achieved by way of righteousness. This Melchizedek, he is a type that images Christ. Jesus is the priest king whose domain is defined by righteousness and peace. His priesthood never ends. In him, righteousness and peace kiss each other, Psalm 85. Melchizedek gave Abraham bread and wine. Some early church fathers see in this a Eucharistic reference, maybe. We do know that the original Melchizedekian priest met Abraham's need in the midst of the battle and the warfare by giving him provision of bread and wine. Jesus Christ meets us in the middle of the battle and the warfare by giving us the bread of his body and the wine of his blood on the cross and on the cross Righteousness and peace meet. That on the cross, the righteous dies for the unrighteous. 
We who are at war with God through the righteousness of Christ are made at peace with God. Psalm 110, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. He is the Lord. And the psalm continues, he will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations. This priest king who is righteous and brings peace is also going to bring justice. And all the things that we don't see right today, even as our brother Chris Anakin said last week, God doesn't always operate on our timeline. And you say, God, when are you going to make all this stuff right? Right now, the priest king brings righteousness and peace. But one day it will be a peace on the other side of a divine war where he will make all things right. Who is Melchizedek? How does he relate to Jesus? Well, Hebrews 7 here tells us. Number three, and we finish with this. Why talk of a Melchizedekian priest with all the crises in the world? My answer would be, with all the crises in the world, how can we not talk about a Melchizedekian priest? The one who is righteous and brings peace. Why talk of a Melchizedekian priest with all the crises in the world? Because the main thing must remain the main thing. Listen, kingdoms and kings will rise and fall. Economies will rise and shatter. Pandemics will come and go. The church Though we acknowledge, grieve, and interact, and even sometimes have action points like what we're doing with Afghanistan or elsewhere, and sometimes we need to talk about these things, but the overwhelming theme and objective and the voice of the church must be Jesus Christ and Him crucified, for He alone is the true shalom. He alone is the true shalom. Do you see the end of verse 3? Resembling the Son of God, He continues a priest forever. Isn't it a beautiful thing that everything we see in the world today, Jesus Christ will outlast it all. And if you are a Christian and the living Christ lives within you through his Holy Spirit, guess what? You will outlast it all. And you will look in the rearview mirror and say, why did I worry? Why did I doubt? My God is in control. Until the day he takes me home, may we be found faithful. So brothers and sisters, talk everywhere you go about that beautiful Melchizedekian priest that is our Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we pray that you will be honored and glorified in us your people. If there is someone here who's not trusted in Jesus Christ as their Savior, I pray that you come talk with me, talk to someone down here who can pray with them and show them from your word how they might be saved. There are so many issues in the world today that are beyond our understanding, but not yours. So many crises that are beyond our power, but not yours. Help us to submit ourselves to you, to be obedient to you. And I pray 
that you would help us to be found faithful. Father, we have been submitting many a young couple going out to the nations the last few months. I pray that you would help them to be faithful. Father, we also celebrate those and recognize those who've been faithful on the path of righteousness. And this morning, we celebrate you, O God, and we also recognize one of your servants. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen.